What up, everybody? There we go. We got a couple of you excited. My name's Brennan. Ted just thankfully told you all, but uh, maybe you met me this morning. Maybe you knew me before. If not, you just met me right now. So my name is Brennan. I work here at the church, and technically, technically, my title is student ministry resident because I knew it was going to pop up, and everybody's like, really? That's your title? I know. I don't love it either. I don't love it. So I call myself the youth and young adult resident, but because it's way more catchy and cool, but they didn't ask me when they titled it, so I would change it. Pretty much what you need to know about me is I'm married. My wife's here. She's on our leadership team. We got married last year, so we just had her one year. Oh, come on. I'm begging for it a little bit. Come on. I had to give her a shout out. Now I got, she got claps too. So otherwise, there's not a ton you need to know about me, except I love Jesus. Like, I, Jesus completely changed my life. Everything about who I was, everything I stood for, everything I cared about was almost opposite of the way of Jesus. And when he got a hold of my life, he radically changed from top to bottom everything I was about. And I'm not going to get emotional here at the beginning, but I want to. And that's why I stand here today. And I, I'm 22, and I graduated two years ago from SDSU. So I'll go Jacks. I love the Jacks. And now I go to school at Indiana Wesleyan. And really when I stand up here and talk to, to young adults, I, I feel like sometimes there's this viewpoint of I'm on the stage, uh, I have the mic, and I prepared the message, so therefore I must be special. And it, it doesn't mean any of that. I, I've been given an opportunity to present a message to you, but everything I declare today you could have found out yourself, and everything I declare today I pray that you'd go and live the same way I'm going to go try and live this. So we're going to dive right in, and Ben snuck a little bit of my thunder away and told you guys it was the last summer oasis, because it's kind of this weird point we're at. It's the last summer oasis, but a bunch of you just moved back, so really it's the first oasis of the year. And because it's the last summer oasis, we have a series rolling right now that's going to finish tonight, and I have the opportunity to finish this series, and it's Micah 6.8. So maybe you've heard of the verse, but it reads like this, and it says, He has shown you, O mortal, what is good. And what does the Lord require of you? To act justly, to love mercy, and to walk humbly with your God. So maybe you've heard that catchphrase. If you've been in the Christian community long enough, you might maybe have. And I get to take the last piece of that. And I get to come to you guys and present a message. And really what happened, I'll sneak you a little behind the scenes, is been through this series together. He didn't throw it together. He prayed about it. He did all the pastor things. But he picked this series. And he came to us three, and he let me pick first. I'm claiming that's because he likes me the most, and we're like the, the best friends. You'll find that out later. But he let me pick first, and I got to this point where I picked this one, but for all the wrong reasons. And to explain that to you, I've got two stories, none of which have to do anything with Jesus, but both of which are going to help you understand where we're going tonight. The first one is this. The year was 1776, and it was in America. And there was a road that is commonly traveled by people of this time, usually by horse or buggy or whatever they did in 1776. Maybe they walked, I don't know. But the tree had fallen and covered the road. And a rider came upon the tree and he saw that there was no crossing because of the, the size of the tree and the way it had fallen. And he couldn't get across. He couldn't continue on his journey. And he saw that there was a, an infantry of men working to get the tree moved out of the road. And as he appeared and, got, and, and was about to get off his horse, he looked to his right and he saw that there was a man there dressed in an officer uniform, unwilling and unhelping of the people trying to move the tree. But he was confused and he was angry and he was a little bitter, but he didn't say anything. And he gets off of his horse and he walks over and he, and he attempts to help the men move the tree. 
And I don't know if it was change of strategy or if this guy was just like that ripped that they got the tree moved because of one guy. But eventually they get the tree moved off the road. And he gets back on his horse and he's about to ride off because traffic's flowing again. And he looks at the man dressed in the officer uniform and he says, why didn't you help these men? And, and the officer gets offended. Like, look at my uniform. Look at the stripes I wear. Why would I have gotten in the dirt to help these men? I'm their commander. And the man who was George Washington, turned to him and said, next time these men need help, tell them to contact the commander-in-chief. And it's an incredible story of humility of the most powerful man in America getting off his horse to help someone who didn't need, maybe needed his help, but he didn't have to. Then the next one is this, the year 1796. 20 years prior or previous, he did this humble act and showed us a piece of his character. 1976, George Washington has just finished serving two terms as our first president of the United States. And at the end of his a term in office, he chose to step down. If you don't believe me, go watch Hamilton. He chooses to step down. He's not forced to, he doesn't have to. Nobody's telling him there's no law in place, yet he chooses to step down and he shows another act of incredible humility and humbleness, but not necessarily out of his character to lower himself, but out of submission to something greater. And the reason I tell you these two stories about George Washington, and I promise that's as patriotic as I'm gonna to get tonight, so if you're a big nationalist, you can come talk to me after. But I tell you these two stories because these are the two ways humility gets viewed in the church. One is this idea that it's a character thing, it's the opposite of pride, it's laying your life down, it's servanthood, it's all of that, and it's fantastic. That's the message I thought I was gonna stand up here and preach tonight. Because I got handed Micah 6.8, I got told, picked, told to, to preach on walk humbly. Maybe it was like a shot at my character, but I don't know. And then he, I got it and I read it and I read it and it's not that. When we're reading this verse here, we're gonna see it's no longer about us and serving to others, like love justice, like act, uh, like act justly and love mercy. Those are all about you and I, how I'm gonna serve you, how you're gonna serve me, how we're gonna interact. We've now flipped the script here in Micah 6.8, and it's all going to be about us and God. How do I interact with my Heavenly Father? And George Washington showed that in the idea that it's a submission to something greater than yourself. And if you've ever heard me speak, which probably a bunch of you haven't, but maybe you have, I sometimes like to throw right at the beginning the catch line. Like, you know, you got a joke coming and everybody's like, what's the punchline? Well, I, I suck at jokes, so here it is right away. The, the whole point of this message is to tell you to walk humbly is to submit to God's will. That's it. That's the whole thing. If you're taking notes, that would be your heading right up there because that is where I'm going to. And I give you that sneak peek and I tell you where I'm going because I think it can work as a roadmap for both of us. So say I'm telling you this incredible sermon, you're all super engaged, you've laughed a ton because I'm hilarious. And eventually, back to the pride thing, eventually we get to the point where I'm a little off topic. This is where you would step in and be like, Brendan, remember the, the path you're taking. Remember to walk humbly. Or if you get lost, because I didn't make any sense, to come back, find the template, find your foundation for the night, and let's keep rolling. And in this sentence, I like to call it like Christianese, because it's this thing where it's got a bunch of pieces where it's like if you just stepped into the church, you'd be like, I don't understand pretty much any of that sentence. So what I'm calling my job tonight is to come to this sentence get you some definitions, and then we're all just going to walk away as better followers of Jesus. So the first one I'm starting with is humility. 
We have to define what humility is because the first part is to walk humbly. It's straight from the scripture. Micah gave it to us, but it has these different definitions. And there's three ways that it gets talked about. The first way is that the big O, don't do that, please. It's the way culture talks about it. And it's to think less of yourself. Really what they're calling it is they say it's a low view of yourself or unwilling or unworthiness. When you say that person got humbled, like that person got humbled is not a positive association. Or, you know, you could really use like some get knocked off your high horse or something like that. It's not culturally, it's not the kindest of words. But then you have these two other definitions that get thrown around in the Christian world. And the next one is to think about yourself less. That's that character piece. That's George Washington getting off his horse to serve his fellow brother and sister. And then lastly, it's where we're landing tonight. And it's to thoughtfully, carefully, and attentively act. The Hebrew word from Micah, because Micah's written in the Old Testament, so he originally wrote it in Hebrew. It's been translated and translated, and finally we have it in English. But when it's written in Hebrew, it's sanah. Sanah is the word that he uses here, and it's the only time in the entire Old Testament that this word for humility is used. And when it's used, it's not the first one, it's not the second one, but it is to thoughtfully, carefully, attentively act. So when we reread our roadmap, when we find our platform again, and it says to walk thoughtfully, carefully, and attentively to submit to God's will to walk with intentionality in every decision we make, every time we interact with someone, every time we come into a prayer moment, every time we read our Bibles, how are you thoughtfully, carefully, and attentively submitting to God's will? The next one is just that, God's will. We throw around the word will, and to be honest, like I didn't Google it. I wasn't at that point of the speech, like Michael Scott Googling the definition of marriage, um, or wedding is what he Googles. I love the office, so you're gonna get a bunch of it, but... He Googles wedding. I didn't do that. But what I did do is everybody probably has heard when someone passes away, they have a will and it's read. And when someone's will is read, what it means is they're just expressing their desires for after they've passed. When we use the word will here, it's the same kind of idea. So when it's to walk humbly, to submit to God's will, it's strictly just how are you going to live in God's desire for your life? And To do that, to best understand what God's desire is for your life, I think we need to look at the whole context of Micah. Because really, what we do, Christian, what we do, not Christian, probably even more, is we love to look at one verse. We want to memorize it, John 3.16, Philippians 4.13, go on and on and on, Jeremiah 29.11. I could go all day about Jeremiah 29.11, but we're going to put it in our Instagram bio. We're going to tweet it out. We're going to tattoo it on our arm. We're going to, you know, you could go into Hobby Lobby and probably find all three of those in like four seconds. But that's how we work sometimes in the Christian world. We like, we like the catchphrase. But I need us to look at all of Micah, all eight chapters, to get the whole picture here. So Micah is a, is a prophet of God in the Old Testament who's declaring a message on God's behalf. That's what a prophet does. So he comes to the nation of Israel and he has a message from God that he's gonna speak to them. And if you were to pick it up and read the eight chapters of Micah found pretty much right in the middle of your Bible, you would probably not walk away feeling great. It is downhearted, sad, not happy book of the Bible. Like if you want a happy one, like go read Philippians. Paul's in jail, but he's talking about joy. But if, you're, if you need a happy one, I would I would stay away from Micah. And it's because they were focused only on themselves, the nation of Israel, and it was all about appeasing God. 
They wanted to do everything they wanted but slide God just a little piece so hopefully he'd be okay. It was about moral corruption and bribery among elite priests, any, anybody who had money slid it under the table so they could get exactly what they wanted. That's the context. They went and they would offer sacrifices and do ritual acts. They, promised, they practiced all of the holidays. Everything you could imagine they did to fulfill the Jewish law except actually living righteously. The whole book is a book of judgment where God's saying this is going to happen to you. And in that, there's a string of hope, but really eight chapters about pride and arrogance and selfishness of an entire nation. So now we've got a little bit of context. We can go back to our single verse. So it reads like this. I'll throw it up on the screen. It says, he has shown you, O mortal, what is good and what does the Lord require of you? What does the Lord require of you? To be honest, the way I think I read it and maybe you read it is it's like the tattoos and the the Hobby Lobby signs and the Instagram bio kind of stuff. Where we read a verse like this and we want the last section. You mean like to do justice, to love mercy, to act humbly. Like that is nice. You know, I'm going to walk up to my non-Christian friend and tell him these things and they're probably going to be like, yeah, yeah, I could associate with that. But the Lord requiring... Like, for us, these become goals we're striving to achieve. Like, you know what? Like, if I had everybody raise their hands and I was like, you, let's, let's do a little poll. We won't actually, but let's say we did. And I said, put your hand down if you don't want to live justly. If, if you raised your hand, I know there's the whole Christians judge and stuff, but you would straight get judged. You know, and then if you said, love mercy, and you're like, you know what? I'm not interested in loving being kind to people. It's like, what do you, most people in the world, like even Ellen is under scrutiny and she even kind of gets the kind thing. Like, and then we did the walk humbly. Nobody likes a prideful person. That's just honest. That's just common life advice. So we can get behind these things, but, but they come lofty goals for us. Like they'll be the check marks that we put on our mirror that it's like, you know what? I'm striving for that one day. But when Micah is standing here in front of an entire nation declaring the word of the Lord, he doesn't set them as lofty goals. They are the benchmarks, the foundations, the very things that these people must hit to avoid the judgment they earlier heard about. I've got a story, and this is like a pastor thing to tell a story to give a point, but I was in middle school, you know, and (laughs) thank you. That's where the story's going. You can start laughing now. I was in middle school, and I was... um, a middle schooler? Uh, it, it wasn't great. You know, I was a little bit disrespectful, way too arrogant, going through puberty, uh, didn't really have the greatest of friends, going through puberty. It, it was a tough time for, I mean, all of us, but I was in middle school. Come on, we got to cut me some slack. And the best part of middle school was lunch. Like, if you liked class but didn't like lunch, like, I don't know if we could be cool. But the best part of middle school was lunch. And at my school, I don't know how it worked at yours, my school was pretty, it was pretty cool. We got to sit with our friends. You could pick your seats, but you had three days to rearrange and get the perfect combination. So like if Jim sat there one day and you didn't want Jim, you'd be like, dude, Jim, not cool, bro, because it's middle school. You got to go. And then it'd be bullying campaigns. But really, middle school was that time, and this was the biggest part. This is the most important part of the year was getting your lunch table right, because I had to sit with these people forever. And I had my squad, my boys, we were pulling up. We were going to sit on the stage, the eight of us, okay? So we all sat down, we all got our seats. I was, I was satisfied, you know, like there's always that one person you're like, please don't make it, please don't. But they, I was eight, eight solid dudes that are gonna chill all, all uh, year long. And the lunch supervisor walked up 
And let's just say we were, we, we had a fairly rocky relationship. She was the choir director. I can't sing worth a, anything. So it wasn't great. And she walked up and you could tell, like I saw her out of the corner of my eye, but you know, when like someone gets real mad, like the red, or like they start to like literally change colors. Like she saw the eight of us and none of us, she didn't like any of us. Like, let's just be honest. And she walked up and she goes, boys, she was so mad. She couldn't even speak. Boys, I highly suggest that you eight do not sit together tomorrow. And we're all like, come on, Miss S. Like, you know, the middle school thing. And she leaves and we're all so sad just because it's like, she just ruined, like, why why am I even coming to school anymore? And one dude's sitting there and he was smarter than me at the time. And he goes, dude, she, she for sure just suggested that. Like she suggested it. Like we don't even care about her opinion. Why wouldn't we just sit together? And everybody's like, oh, Bob, that is a great, great point. So day two rolls around, all eight of us sit together. And I promise you, I kid you not, I'm sitting there. And I was like part of the crowd, but like a little bit of a good kid. So I like didn't want to get in trouble. And I saw her out of the corner of my eye. And that, that like thing where people get mad and they're like, you know, they like really get going. She sprints across the stage and like she comes up to us and she's kind of old. So she was moving, like hustling. And she looks at us and she's like, you have got to be kidding me. Like, why would you? And she starts freaking out. And one of the guys goes, but you just suggested it. And at that point, I don't ever know, I don't, I don't think I've ever seen someone so mad. Like it was, first of all, it's lunch. So take a chill pill. But she she demanded that if we all sat together, we would all have office referrals and not get to sit with anybody. We'd sit in the window all, some, all year long for lunch. So she was like dead serious on not letting us sit together. And I think that's kind of how we read this in Micah. It's like a, you know, they just kind of suggested it. God just said it, but like, do we really need to act in accordance to what he's saying? Like, is there any consequences for these words? And I want us to continue to to examine the first part, but more specifically the second part. Because the second part of my platform statement, the one we're coming back to, because you know I told you about the tangent, coming back to it, it's God's will. God's will is that Christian lingo that gets thrown around and we've heard it's God's desire, but I think we can break it up into three pieces tonight. The first one is do justice. If you missed the series, we have it on our podcast. The podcast is just Oasis Young Adults, and we get to do the messages and weekly conversations. So if you need something to listen to in the week, go check it out. We have a lot of fun, and we sometimes get things done. But the podcast has the message from Ben talking about do justice. And it's the Sermon on the Mount, and it's a beautiful example of how Jesus, the person we claim when we call ourselves Christians, came alongside the underprivileged, the marginalized, the oppressed, the hurting, and he, and he helped them in every way he did. And we read that and sometimes we're like, you know, like, it's a nice suggestion. But for God, it was the benchmark. Then we've got love mercy. Jaina came along and she gave us a beautiful example again of Jonah. How Jonah did an act, but his heart wasn't involved in it and therefore it wasn't, it wasn't good in God's eyes. God worked through Jonah despite his heart, but yet we're called to love mercy, do it generously, and do so with a good heart posture. And then the third one you could probably guess would be, just kidding, it's not walk humbly, it's be sanctified. Be sanctified. More Christian lingo for you. Sanctification is this crazy, funny, weird, complicated 
Probably not useful word for most of us. But in 1 Thessalonians 4, 3, Paul writes to that church there, and he says, it is God's will that you should be sanctified. That's his will for your life. That's what Paul's telling that church, and that's what I think Paul tells you today as you read that verse. It is God's will for you to be sanctified. So when we look at sanctification, let's define it again. I think it works in two parts. First part is to become holy gods. W-H-O-L-L-Y, holy. To be completely, entirely, 100% gods. And then the second part is to become holy like God. H-O-L-Y. It works in two pieces because it covers the complexity of what the word means. It's all about increasing in holiness and becoming holy like God and all totally, 100% all in on God. And it's a definition given here by our lead pastor, and I've tweaked it and summed it up a little bit, but I think it's the perfect definition for sanctification. And I want to talk here. I want to say this is the third part of God's will because I think it is, and I think you can walk away with something that could change your life if you actually practiced it. And it comes from James 4, 6 through 8. And it says, but he gives us more grace. That is why the scripture reads, God opposes the proud, but shows favor to the humble. Submit yourselves then to God, resist the devil, and he will flee from you. Come near to God, and he will come near to you. So I've got three points to draw from James. I'm parking it here, so I promise it's not going to go much longer if you're getting bored. But three points from James that are going to help us grow in sanctification to become holy gods and holy like God. The first one is this, submit yourselves to become holy gods, entirely, completely gods, all gods, that every piece of who you are, every piece of your life, every action you do, every thought you have would become under the, the umbrella of God's will. For I just told you at the very beginning that Jesus changed my life. The first step of Jesus changing your life is to become holy gods. You have to submit yourselves. 2 Corinthians six eighteen says Paul writing to the Corinthian church that you are the sons and daughters of God, that he has claimed you as his blessed and chosen children. And because of that, you can be holy gods. Then number two is resist the devil. James gives it to us like that. And he says, resist the devil and he will flee from you. This is to become holy like God. Now, precursor here, if you're a Christian, God already views you as holy. He sees you as righteous because of what Jesus has done on the cross. What I'm saying here is to grow in holiness like God. To take steps that, okay, I'm here. I struggle with these things. This is where I want to grow, but I'm going to take steps forward. Not because I have to. Because you can go and, and, and love Jesus and be uh, under the cross and completely saved 100% entirely but I believe God is calling us to grow in sanctification and to become holy like God. And the reason I say this, and I need to again clarify, because I could be the dude up here saying, become holy like God's, resist the devil, and you'll all sit out there and say, best of luck, or I've tried that, because I've been in that seat. I've watched the pastor stand up here and say the thing about sin and not not known what to do. Because I've been the guy who's gone to the party that I know I shouldn't go at because my friends are going to be there who are going to make me drink too much. 
I've been the guy that's had the girl and we've gone too far. I've been the guy who's gone on his phone late at night and looked at the website I knew I shouldn't have looked at. I've been the guy that's had the relationships where I said the thing that hurt the person. I've been the guy. Over and over and over again, I've been the guy and I can hear the message of resist the devil and I can get stuck there too. But we need to recognize that we have power in us. 1 Corinthians 3.16, Paul writes again to the Corinthian church and he tells them that they have received the Holy Spirit. As a Jesus follower, he's given you his spirit. God lives inside of you as a follower of him and therefore that gives you power to do exactly what he's calling you to do, resist the devil. And he will flee from you. So cling to that. Tap into the dynamite power that Jesus has in the Holy Spirit. And number three, come near to God. I would have put these chronologically, but I couldn't figure out the best balance for them. Because to be honest, I think all three of them work at the same time. As you're becoming holy like God, you're becoming holy gods, and you're drawing near to God. They're all, you flip them around, pull the red cup, whatever you need to do, they're all continuously moving and flipping. So they're not chronological, but if I had to stress one, it would have to be this one. Come near to God. James 4, 6 but he gives us more grace. And then he finishes, come near to God, and he, the God of the universe, the God who knit you together in your mother's womb, the God who knows all things, who plans all things, who holds all things in his hands, the God who knows and created everything you, you could ever believe or imagine, he intimately wants to draw near to you. And he gives us more grace. So when you looked at that screen again, when you did that thing with that person again, when you drank that thing again, when you smoked that thing again, when you did that thing and hurt that person again, God gives you more grace. That's the God we worship and follow. That's the God who did it himself. Because when we finish and we've done our three points, I got to wrap up the context of Micah. We got to zoom back out and get the whole picture. Because Micah has this snippet right in the middle. I told you it's a book of judgment. But that line of hope is what I pray we cling to. Because in chapter two at the end, God's declaring, I am the one. I am the king who will fix the problems of this nation. I will take it upon myself. And if you've read the Bible, if you've heard the Christian story, he does exactly that. Philippians 2, five through eight. In your relationships with one another, have the same mindset as Christ Jesus, who being in the very nature God, holy, completely, fully God, did not consider equality with God something to be used to his own advantage. Rather, he made himself nothing by taking the very nature of a servant, being made in human likeness, and being found in appearance as a man, he humbled himself, becoming obedient to death, even death on a cross. Jesus is the fulfillment. Jesus is the answer to your problems. Jesus is your hope. Jesus is your peace. Jesus is your joy. Jesus is the, the breaking of the chains that hold you in sin. Jesus is the freedom from addiction. Jesus is the freedom from anxiety and depression. Jesus is the fulfillment of humility. He walks perfectly in humility with God. So when we fail and God gives us more grace, we can come back to Jesus because he's the fulfillment. We need to walk humbly by submitting to God in our lives, the same way Jesus submitted to God all the way to death on the cross. We need to love mercy. We need to do justice. We need to walk humbly. Let me pray for you. Father, thank you tonight that we have 
this incredible moment to come together in ways that, honestly, I, I started to dream weren't even possible. Father, that we can come back into a room and, and open up your word and sing your praise, Father, that we can, masks and all, just openly, unashamedly worship you in this place. God, thank you tonight that you've taken us to the text of, um, of Micah, that you've led us through this verse and you've shown us in the big picture that you bring justice, mercy, and humility, God, that we simply come and try and attempt to fulfill your requirements, but every time you give us more grace. So I pray, Father, that as we leave this place, we would not work harder or work smarter or whatever American lingo we want to put to it to try to achieve salvation and, and sanctification in our own might. But rather, Jesus, we'd cling to the truths of who you say you are, that you sent your son before we were clean, but while we were still sinners, you sent your son and he paid the price on the cross. So now tonight we can step into the room and we can have relationship with you again. God, that you draw near to us in our hurting, in our pain, in our sin, in our selfishness, in our pride, God, every time we've, we've stumbled and fallen, you've been there to pick us up, God, and you've brought us here tonight and you're drawing near. So open our hearts as we finish with this last song to just, to know, to know your love. Maybe it's for the first time, Father, you're opening someone's heart to receive you. I pray they don't welcome you with open arms, God. I pray tonight that if someone is in this room and they've, they've lived in sin, they've struggled and they, they're wrestling with the idea of sanctification, Father, that you would help them through the power of the Holy Spirit to become holy gods and holy like you, God. And I pray for those of us in the room that it's been going well. Coronavirus and all, we've been able to follow you and love you that you give us strength in this year, whether it's work or school, to continue to be your vessels to a broken world. Jesus, you get all honor, all glory, all praise. It's in your name. Amen.